Industry Conversations. I'm your host, Kyle Rather. This speaker series is part of a course in the Department of Radio, Television, and Film at the University of Texas at Austin. Students hear from industry professionals who talk about their experiences, knowledge, and thoughts on the changing media landscape. Today's guest is Felicia Henderson. Few people in the television industry have had the experiences that Henderson has had. She's an award-winning writer, producer, and showrunner. She's worked on a number of beloved television shows, including The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Sister Sister, Gossip Girl, and Fringe, just to name a few. Her recent projects include serving as the executive producer for the hour-long BET drama The Quad, and she holds an MBA and MFA and is currently completing her doctorate degree, as well as working as an assistant professor in the RTF department here at UT. Henderson talks about breaking into the industry, working up the ranks as a writer, and making the elusive jump from comedy to drama. She also talks about the challenges and opportunities of working as a producer, the importance of mentorship, and cultivating diverse voices in the media industry. She spoke on September 25th, 2017, on the UT campus, and the conversation was hosted by Elisa Perrin. Before we dig in, I just want to uh, give my thank yous to a bunch of people. First of all, I want to thank my colleague, Cindy McCreary, who helps me organize this series. She's in the back there. <laughs> as well as uh, grad student assistants, Brett Siegel, Annie Major, Kyle Rather, and Britta Hansen for all of their assistance organizing this. And then I also want to thank both Paul Steckler for his support in getting this together in the first instance and Tom Schatz uh, for his continuing support of this as well as Alana Wakeman for her assistance marketing this and Dean Bernhard and Mike Wilson for their assistance uh, and support as well. So uh, with that, now let me introduce our guest, uh, who I'm thrilled, as I mentioned, to welcome here as a colleague. And this is my chance to get to know her as much as all of you. Uh, and we hope today to speak about at least a, a small snippet of her varied experiences as a writer, producer, director, publicist, and what have you. Um, and hopefully we will walk through some of her experiences dating back from her work uh, breaking in at NBC and the WB and UPN to her more recent experiences uh, with Showtime up through running the quad for BET uh, and maybe even hear about her most recent work. Yes. So uh, with that, please join me in welcoming Professor Felicia Henderson. I love, first of all, she said her most recent work which means that I've already indoctrinated her into the clandestine way that my career is happening. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, ex I'm excited to know what you're doing. Uh, so let's just start out with, uh, can, I know that you, your initial undergraduate education and early career wasn't necessarily connected to media. And so I'm so, kind of curious how you took that initial trajectory towards media. Mm. Um, I think the initial, when I, before I got into this business, I was in finance. And um, I was working at a mergers and acquisitions company as the uh, sort of finance and research librarian. And um, my boss at that time said that if you want to stay or grow, you're going to have to get an MBA. And um, so I said, okay. 
and looked around and the University of Georgia had um, what was called the NBC and Peabody um, Fellowship. And um, it said that if you are interested in a job in management in television, apply here. And I, of course, had never thought about a job in management and television, but it was a full ride. So um, maybe that's where my writing career started because the uh, application and essays I wrote about all I've ever wanted to do my whole life was be in management and television. <laughs> um, and so I got the fellowship. So I, I went to University of Georgia under the Peabody NBC Fellowship and um, Part of that fellowship was then an internship at NBC. And that internship turned into the management training program. I got into that next. And that's really where it started. And where I read my first scripts was at, uh, at NBC in the management training program. So I know that, at least from what I could tell reading your CV, you were a publicist for a while, or? That was later. Actually, that was later? Yeah, my first job was um, in that management training program. Okay. And from that, one of the rotations was through publicity. Oh, OK. Yeah, and so from there, um, I left, when I left NBC, I left to become a publicist at Warner Brothers. So how did you make that pivot, first to publicity and then to writing? How did, how did that process go? Um, well, one of my supervisor at NBC, um, I was always very opinionated about the scripts <laughs> that I was reading, and so I'd ask him lots of questions. I'd never been exposed to it before, but I got a chance to read a lot of um, pilot scripts, mm -hmm. and a lot of them were really horrible. <laughs> and, um, and so I got really interested in like, how much money do they pay you to be this horrible? <laughs> and I started to get answers to those questions, and I was like, wow. I think I want to be a writer. <laughs> and um, because I knew for sure I could be at least that bad, right? I'm like, I, could, I know I can do that. And, um, and so that supervisor said, told me about the Warner Brothers Writers Workshop, okay. um, which is um, you know, a, a program, a writers, young writers program. Um, that's one of the sort of most well-known and most successful um, new writers programs in LA. And um, you had to write a script to get into it. And that was the first script I, I ever wrote, was the comedy script. It was a Roseanne. Oh, wow. Yes, that's how old I am. <laughs> um, it was a Roseanne script. And I got into the program with that script. So what were you doing in this kind of program? Because I know a lot of our students might be interested in this sort of thing. Yeah, that program still exists. I actually teach in that program. Oh, wow. Now. But it used to be all comedy. And now, because of the you know, transitions in television, because it started when comedy was, you know, king. Mm -hmm. and, um, and now it's a comedy and drama program, about equal. So they basically take about 18 to 20 young writers per year. Um, and um, for about three months, it's a very intensive program where you, um, you're assigned a mentor who's an executive at, at, at Warner Brothers. Um, you get access to all of their shows, to writers, to showrunners. Um, you have to write two specs while you're in the program. So it's a really wonderful program. And then at the end of it, you have the opportunity to, it's not guaranteed, but um, to be placed on one of their shows as a Warner Brothers writers uh, trainee. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what happened for me. 
So where did you get placed when you were? My first show ever was um, Family Matters. Oh, wow. So nobody here was born, but it's <laughs> I was. You've probably seen it. Uh, the Urkel Show, you may know him or as the Urkel Show. That was my first job ever. The first home I bought was the home that Urkel built. <laughs> um, and it was a very good experience. So what was it like to work in TV at that point uh, on Family Matters? And I know you worked on Fresh Prince subsequently. Yeah, it was, you know, like I said, comedy was a big thing. So it was a lot of fun. Um, it was very different than it is now. Not that comedy isn't fun now, it's just that there aren't as many. Um, but it was a lot of fun. It still is the best place in the world to be in a um, television comedy writer's room because every day you can't believe like they're paying me to laugh. <laughs> it's wonderful. So uh, were the, was the structure of the writer's room and what they did more or less the same at that point in time than how you, yeah. Yes, I think that because, you know, cable wasn't so prevalent, cable writing staffs tend to be smaller than network writing staffs. So that's really the only difference. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so what was the, the size, or what generally is the size of a writing staff that you'll um, It depends on how big the show is, obviously. Although some big shows, writers still, or showrunners still like small um, writing staffs. But comedy writing staffs tend to be larger than drama writing staffs. Um, I've been on a staff as large as 12 mm -hmm. and as small as four. Oh, wow. Is it different to write for a multi-cam type of show than a single cam, or what is that process? I mean, the difference is in to the tone of your work. Mm -hmm. The work itself is probably the same, mm -hmm. but, you know, single camera comedies tend to um, be more story-driven. Um, the comedy tends to be, in some ways, um, not always, but some ways more sophisticated. Mm -hmm. um, not as broad by not as sophisticated. I mean, um, not as broad as you know, multicam. Mm -hmm. um, so, because I certainly wouldn't say that something like Big Bang Theory isn't sophisticated comedy, um, but you know, but the comedy is is broader, if you will. So I know that then you went to. I mean, you've been in so many different contexts to Moesha, right? And. Um, Yes. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Walking through your history. Yes, so, yes, yes. Uh, so what was it like to move from sort of one of the major networks to a more up-and-coming network and during that time? was? Well, you know, at the time, Moesha was developed for CBS. So it, there wasn't a lot of difference because it was developed for CBS. Um, I think just like with cable now, you know, I think UPN and the CW, um, you had more freedom because they were new and upcoming. They, it wasn't as um, sort of invasive, if you will, mm -hmm. as uh, traditional network television mm -hmm. can be. So that was really it. And maybe the budgets, the budgets on those shows um, were smaller than budgets on major networks. Gotcha. So how did you pivot from sitcoms to dramas? Um, well, all of my friends and, and other people who aren't my friends all think like I'm some kind of wondrous guru who just knew the comedy was going to be dying. So I'm, that's probably the question I'm asked the most often is like, how did you know? <laughs> right? And um, I had no idea is the real answer, but I just knew that I was ready for a change. I'd been writing, you know, um, eight o'clock family comedy. Um, 
for a few years and I was starting to get a little bit bored and um, thought it's time to recreate myself and um, decided to apply to UCLA to the MFA program in screenwriting and directing. Um, and it was there that I, I wrote a screenplay that was a family drama and won the uh, screenwriting contest with it. And one of the judges was the head of drama development at Paramount and saw it as they, right at Showtime, was looking for someone to um, adapt and create the Soul Food series. So it was just timing. Yeah. But it was still, what was most interesting is that I'd been working at like Paramount and Paramount shows for, at that point, 10 years. And still, when they saw this script, they you know, had to call UCLA and say, can we, because it's all anonymous, can we have the name of that writer? And when they gave them my name, they're like, oh, we work with a Felicia Henderson <laughs> who's a comedy writer. And, and they're like, we think it's the same person because our <laughs> student is, you know, and they're like, no, this one's a comedy writer. It was really hard for them. <laughs> and it's just an example of the boxes, yeah. you know, that um, it's very common and very hard to get out of, no matter what it is. And so um, it took them a while. And even when they met me, I was like, yeah, that's you, you know. <laughs> it was still hard for them to say, did you write that really? And, um, and then when I was writing drama for a while and wanted to know, like, am I still funny, you know? And told my agents to look for me a job on a comedy, you can guess, it was like, well, she's a drama writer. Right? <laughs> so it was, um, but I then did go on to write um, on Everybody Hates Chris yeah. because I wanted to do a comedy again. And that's how I found out I am a drama writer. <laughs> <laughs> so is that still the case that people really get pigeonholed and you're a comedy person, you're a drama person? Yes, it's still, I'm still odd in that I write both. Mm -hmm. um, maybe a little less so because there's, you know, dramedies and half hour comedies, but they're really dramas and hour long comedies or dramas that are really comedies, you know, so, but it's still, um, it's still, it's, I'm still a bit of an oddity that I do both. Yeah. It's impressive. <laughs> is, so how is the process, or is the process diff different when you're working on a drama series versus working on a comedy series in terms of the writing team and sort of how the script yes. moves through? Um, the process that itself, you know, being in a writer's room, whereas in comedy, all shows have writer's rooms. In drama, maybe 70%. There are some where they never meet together as a writer's room. But, you know, maybe, maybe that's more like 20% of shows. But so that work is the same where you're in a writer's room, um, you know, you're pitching stories, you're coming up with stories together, um, and then someone gets assigned to write that episode or an episode. Um, I think that the biggest difference is that when you're writing comedy, I think it's much harder. Um, because anything could be happening in your life, you know, and something horrible or something sad, and really your coworkers, because comedy writers are all so cruel, they're like, that's really sad, for like two days. Then it's like, now get back in the room and be funny. Whereas working on a drama, whatever you're going through, you can bring it into the room, but you don't have any expectation to be funny and up and, you know, um, on all the time, and you know, you're pitching a joke that 
it, now let's see if we can top that joke. You never, there's never a moment where you're not working. Whereas a drama room is, can be, you know, you're mostly sharing stories of life anyway. So you can say, come in the room and go, you know, I, here's how this helps that I broke up with my boyfriend last night and you can even cry and it's okay. But like if it, as long as it helps the story. Right, You right. know, so you definitely share more of who you are maybe, <clears throat> what your experiences are in a drama room. But you can just kind of be who you are every day. So when, what was your role on Soul Food? What were your particular responsibilities? Oh, my, I was the showrunner. You were so, the showrunner. Yeah, so I, it's my, it was my first drama, okay. you know, that the UCLA screenplay helped me make that transition. And um, it was my first drama, so I was paired with um, like an Emmy Award winning um, writer um, and uh, as the executive producer because I'd never done a drama before. Mm -hmm. Was that your first time as a showrunner? No, I'd run like two com comedies Oh wow! Mm -hmm. So maybe you can walk through with one of the shows for which you've been a showrunner what the scope of your responsibilities were and if, they, if they've differed. Gosh. <laughs> um, it's everything. You're, you're the last you know, person to touch every single script. You know, I, I rewrite every one, some more heavily than others. Everything from, but right before I walked in here, I got photos of a new haircut for an actress that she's unhappy with. So um, every morning by probably 5 a.m., I get photos of wardrobe to approve um, because they're, you know, they're in Atlanta, it shoots in Atlanta and by 6 a.m. production is starting and the actors are in the chair and they're getting ready. So by 5 a.m. or unless I'm in L.A. like at 3 o'clock in the morning or something, these photos come. Um, to, you know, supervising the writing, to hiring the directors, to I, just everything, just everything. Um, you know, luckily I'm also very good at delegating, <laughs> but um, you're, you're the last word on everything. And certainly for, from the network's point of view, um, they say they hire a vision. And so yours is the vision they're interested in. No matter if a director doesn't do well, they will never call the director and say that director failed. You know, it will still be like you turned in a bad episode. So all the way to, you know, post, so it's, there's pre-production where you're in the room with the writers and coming up with all the episodes. And um, the showrunner usually writes at least the first and the last episode. And then you're in production. Um, so we're in principal photography on the second episode of the season right now. And then there's post-production where you're editing and then mixing them. So I think the best way to explain it is that at any given time, a showrunner is dealing with or managing five episodes because you have the one you're breaking in the room with the writers, right? You have the one that um, you're supervising that another writer might be writing and asking you questions about. You have the one that you are shooting on stage right now. You have the one um, that's in post-production. And then you will have also the one that the network has notes on that you refuse to do. <laughs> so I was just sitting over here until one of you, you know, cries uncle, basically. So what are the key sort of people that you're dealing with during this process? Then obviously there's the writing staff, there's executives from the network. 
Are there other? Oh gosh, everywhere? yes, <laughs> yes. I talk to the line producer. Usually that's how your morning starts, is talking to the line producer to say, here's what's going on today. You know, he's the first one on set every morning, so he'll report, you know, what's going on. And um, then, there, you know, and the key, like I said, I just got a call from the key, um, the makeup, uh, the hair department head saying, here's a problem with this hair. So every department head from the cinematographer to hair and makeup, uh, to the locations manager who we're also having trouble with right now who doesn't want to be fired, so he wants to call and tell his side of the story. Like, but I'm going into class to teach now. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone, you interact um, with everyone. On the executive side, mm -hmm. what kinds of executives will you be dealing with regularly? Um, you have studio and network executives, usually two at each place. So you, usually there's a junior person like who's responsible for the day-to-day -day, um, stuff, you know, and um, there's an executive who, sometimes three, there's an executive <laughs> who's assigned to your show who then reports to the head of current programs department. Mm -hmm. um, and you have those exact same um, executives on the studio side. So they all really have the same positions, but depending on who's telling you what you want to hear is who you <laughs> like the most. So are you involved with marketing and oh, yeah. social media and all that as all well? That. I mean, how do you manage all yes. of this? I forget what I'm involved with until you bring it up. <laughs> but yes, it's, you know, you have, uh, like we've already had two sort of, um, they call state of the show marketing kind of meetings where myself and the writing staff take, you know, with a, I don't know, 15, 20 page document um, that takes them through all of our story arcs and what we're interested in and some of the creative ideas and how even how we're um, going to um, title each of our episodes that might be of interest for publicity, um, what characters we're bringing back, what, which ones we're not, new characters we're introducing, all of that. Um, and then there's now, you know, that didn't used to exist, there's also the head of digital who will want to know like what digital will do when they'll send out that team to do behind the scenes stuff. And this year on that show, for the first time, I've then also been asked to do a talk back at the end of every episode that will air on BT.com. Oh. So I don't get any more money for that, by the way. Right, it's just right. Just consider now like part of your responsibilities. So maybe we can pivot there and talk more specifically about the quad and sort of how that project developed and maybe how you see your responsibilities evolving with that or your other recent project, if you feel comfortable discussing it. <laughs> I don't know who told you that it was a secret, but it just makes me laugh. I um, wasn't sure. It's no, not it anywhere. No, it is, yeah. that, That's beautiful. Okay. That, um, <laughs> that the communication is that tight here at school. <laughs> um, so um, the quad truly, I guess now it's three years ago, the development of it, this we're in our second season of the show, but it started like three and a half years ago, the development, um, uh, when um, a guy called Rob Hardy, who's a director, um, came to me and asked me would I be interested in developing this project with him. And um, I heard his version of the idea and I didn't like it so much. But, um, but I agreed with him that, you know, life, depicting life at a historically black college 
was a drama that should be on television and that BET was the only place that you could really do it authentically. Mm -hmm. And I was interested in that. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so um, he kind of been around trying to pitch it, but everywhere he went said, okay, that's an interesting idea, who's the showrunner? Because it really is, they just care about who's gonna actually create it, who's gonna do the work, who's gonna be responsible every week. And, um, and so I said yes to coming aboard and um, creating it. And at the time it was, um, I was still very like sort of obsessed with Hillary Clinton's first run for president and a lot of uh, the, and, and the way that she was treated in the politics of gender and all of that kind of stuff. So I was interested in that and, and it was fresh in my head, I think. Um, so I said, what I'm interested in is a woman, the first woman president of this university, who's not only the first woman, but she's also a northerner, um, because I was also interested in looking at um, the lives of, of, of African Americans as, um, as complicated and as not monolithic, and that this woman who was from Connecticut had a hard time then fitting in in the South, but she thought because she was black it would all be good, and it isn't. So it's gender and class and you know intra-racial politics and all of that stuff about the first woman president um, on this historically black college campus. Great, so how has the process evolved for you? Um, have there been surprises? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Any particular lessons or stories yes. that you feel comfortable oh. sharing? <laughs> you know, one of the biggest, um, it, and this is true, every single show I've ever been on, I feel like I've seen everything. And then every single show I've been on, there's something where I go, haven't seen that before. <laughs> so you said this is shooting in Atlanta, right? Yes. And you've been on set, obviously. Yes. I mean, how are you managing this? Are you on set? a lot, in the editing room a lot. How does that work? Yes, um, I teach here on Mondays and Tuesdays, and then I'm there Wednesdays through Fridays. Well, really Saturdays, because then I have meetings on Saturdays. Um, and um, the only reason it works is because I'm the boss. Mm -hmm. It would be impossible to do this if it weren't that I can say, this is where I am, you guys can call me, but here's when I'm absolutely not available. Is, 9.30 to 12.30 on Tuesdays and 1 to 5 on Mondays. Wow. But you can call me any other time. I, I'm very tired even thinking about how you're balancing <laughs> all of this. Um, and beyond this, I know that you've also written comic books, which I'm very curious about. Yes. Um, and how that fits in and how that process know. Uh, you goes. You know, um, really, if there's anything in, like, you know, that's instructive about that, it is that if you just do one thing well, you will get opportunities to do other things. And I know a lot of times young writers, um, there's a kid that I'm mentoring now who's a, a Morehouse College kid, and we met on Friday. He's an, such an extraordinary kid and so impressive, you know, and showed up at the meeting with his little suit on and his tie and his little briefcase. It was so cute. And, um, <laughs> But really impressive, really smart kid. But then I go, so what do you want to do? And he says, I want to do it all. Well, that's the wrong answer. <laughs> you know, um, you have to be able to say, even if that's true, um, but you have to be able to say when you're starting out that there's one thing that you want to do. And so that people think that you're focused 
And then you get to do that one thing well, and it will lead to other opportunities. And that's what um, comic books, really, I, I love comic books and have read them since I was a kid. Um, but the chance to write them really was as, uh, and I started with Teen Titans because I had written on Gossip Girl, you know, which is a teen show, right. and Fringe, which was sci-fi, so those were like, they loved my credits, you know, this person wants to do comic books, she's perfect for this, and I had a mentor, um, Dwayne McDuffie, God rest his soul, who um, was really powerful at DC, and was writing Batman, and was just an amazing, amazing mentor to have, and, um, but I really went in to get a chance to um, do Static Shock, and so they're like, if you write Team Titans for a year, then we will um, bring Static Shock back. So that was the real, real goal ah. is when I went. Was to, but I I'd only got to do a special issue of Static Shock because it was really Dwayne McDuffie who was um, supporting that idea. Mm -hmm. and, and he was so important to DC that they said yes, just because he said it should come back and here's the writer. But in that meantime, of, in the development process of bringing it back, he passed away. And literally a week later, they told me, we're not doing Static Shock now, but you can write a special issue um, as a, um, as a, what's the word? Um, uh, to honor Dwayne's memory. So that's what I got to do is one issue of Static Shock. Did, so did you find the process of writing comic scripts a very different experience? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> very, very different experience and very intensive experience. And, you know, and, and yet collaborative in the way that television is collaborative right. in that, you know, you're given an artist and, um, and you have to somehow be able to communicate with that artist what it is that you see going on the page. And it's a very visual medium. Mm -hmm. um, so it really probably relates more to my, my feature writing um, experience than it does my television because you are always thinking very uh, visually about what it is that you want to do. Um, well, I'm curious too, I mean, you've worked on so many properties that have such avid fan bases. Yes. And I'm curious, like, do you consider or think about the audience or fan response as you're writing or does that figure in at all or is there, are there places in the process where you're thinking through how the audience fits you in? You know, I really try not to um, and that is harder to do now because you know, the network will be telling you, well, you know, this is what they're saying on Twitter or whatever. And um, I remember reading the um, Steve Jobs uh, biography and being so taken with him saying, you know, that you know, consumers don't know what they want until you tell them. And I kind of believe in that. I believe that I'm supposed to write the best, you know, story that I can write mm -hmm. and then hope that I have written something that audiences relate to or respond to. I think that I fail if I start going, what, what did they say? You know, um, okay, well, we won't do that anymore because it isn't then, you know, a, a singular vision anymore. So I'm interested right. for sure right. in what they say. I think that I've had more um, interaction with in writing comic books because I got a stalker from writing comic books. That was interesting. Yikes. Um, who found out where I lived and everything because comic book, like 
fans are weird. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, but I'm one of them, but I'm like, maybe I'm weird too, but they are very, <laughs> you know, I had people come up to me and like, I have a gift for you, you know, at Comic-Con, and that was like, okay, <laughs> and it was a guy who'd written a comic book about me writing a comic book, <laughs> it's a true story. <laughs> wow. And, it, and, and what my process must be, and he wanted me to read it while he stood there, so. <laughs> Comic book people are very interesting. Um, well, I'm curious, like on the mentorship front, I know that you've yes. been an amazing mentor for a lot of people. And I'm curious, because you have a whole eager audience here, yes. what kinds of advice do you give or what kinds of misconceptions might you try to clear up for people um, that are young and coming up? Yes. Um, I think that um, no matter where you enter the business, you, you have to do a good job wherever you enter. Um, I have certainly had experiences where, you know, young people coming in as a production assistant or an intern, paid or unpaid, immediately start asking you to read their scripts. And you're like, I don't even know if you can get my tea right yet. And you want me, like, do that well, and then one day I'll ask you, so what is it you want to do? That will always, always happen if you're doing your job well, regardless of what your job is. Someone will ask you, what is it that you want to do? Right. And then it's a great opportunity to share. Um, but you wanna just make sure that you do a good job of whatever you're hired to do. I think that particularly writers, advice for writers, um, is that so many times people will tell you they're a writer but they haven't written anything. And um, so you'll say, what have you written? And they go, no, I'm, I'm still working on it. And um, I look like, boy, what a wasted opportunity um, that you just had, or having written something that isn't done yet, right. but you know, um, or is full of typos, or um, you just didn't, you know, get people to the right people to read it and give you feedback, and then they want to say, well, can you read it again? And the answer is no. Um, you know, that's someone else's spot now. Right, right. So I think that that's important. I think that um, relationships and how you treat people is so important. Um, and, uh, you know, really in film school is a great place to start developing those relationships. And, I mean, a lot of the relationships that I have from the beginning of my career, um, when I was at Family Matters, it was two producers there who went off to create Moesha and then asked me to come along. I was at Fresh Prince and was not having a good time. Um, and so I was able to go when, you know, they, so, but those are relationships. And now one of those women who created Moesha is now on my writing staff. Oh, yeah. So I've known her now 20 years. So it's a really always about relationships and, and how you treat people and what kind of work ethic you have. Mm -hmm. That's what people will talk about when they, people call and ask for references, what kind of work ethic you have. That's helpful. Um, I'm curious, you've also directed yes. episodes, yes. right? Mm -hmm. And what is, how did you move into that and what have you found that process to be like and advice you might have about that? You know, I truly, until I was a showrunner, I had never had any interest in directing, but it was writing and, um, you know, when you're the showrunner, you're in charge. And so when you're giving the director 
notes and we have with every director what's called a tone meeting mm -hmm. where you literally page by page take them through the script what's important in every scene how it is to work with each actor every actor's idiosyncrasies everything that you want them to know and it takes like two to three hours every episode to do that and i just had a, an, an episode that i knew it was very personal the story and I thought, I don't want to have to try to explain to someone on this one what's in my head. Mm -hmm. And um, I have a sister who suffers horribly for, from anxiety attacks. And that's what the episode was going to be about. And it's debilitating for her. And I wrote that for a character. And I knew the you know, specifics of what that thing was. And so I um, told the network I have to direct this one. It wasn't really like a career move as it was. I wanted it to be right and I didn't want it to have to interpret, right. know, be interpreted. And then I, and I had a good time. Which show was this? That was for Soul Food. Okay. Yeah, that's the first time I did and I liked it. I enjoyed it very much. And, you know, and we got done so much faster and made all our days because there wasn't that person in between that I was then giving them notes and then they go to the actors. I could just you know, and the actors, of course, trust me because I'm the showrunner. So right. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it very much. And you've continued to direct periodically? Yes, I've continued to pretty much on every show that I'm yeah. on. And um, I'm writing, I'm trying desperately to finish a, a screenplay now that I will also direct. Wow. A feature? Yes. And you've done features as well, right? Yes. How do you find the process of writing, uh, or is it any different to develop feature films or versus television. It's not any different, really. It takes longer. Yeah. Um, you know, I used to do a bit of script doctoring. Um, and at first it was fun, because I would be, I just got sort of a reputation, and I'd be the person who comes in to write the emotional scene on, like, action movies. Um, and that was interesting. And, but not one, I will say I did it maybe 10 times on big action and comic book adaptation type movies, not once has that scene been in the movie. Because <laughs> they're not about the big emotional scene. Right, right. Right? And so, but what happens is that the studio says there's no emotion in this thing and we need somebody to have some emotion and to get it made, you go, okay, well, we'll write that. But the action writer isn't usually also the emotion writer. So um, I come in and for, they pay you a bunch of money to come in for a week and you write these scenes and they're never in the movie. <laughs> so pretty soon that was like unfulfilling. Yeah, I yes. can understand that. So uh, sort of I'll ask one or two more questions and then open up for the audience to ask some questions. Sure. Um, I'm curious if you can tell us if there's particular things in the media industry, the TV industry that you find especially exciting or terrifying right now, uh, things that our students should know about. Yes. Um, there are exciting things and they're terrifying things. <laughs> it truly, um, because one of the things I find terrifying is that more and more executives are getting um, producer titles and managers are now also um, producers. And so what it means is that, what does that mean for the vision and who controls the direction of storytelling um, because it's usually, you know, the people with power as opposed to storytellers. Um, I, I find it also terrifying that um, the need to uh, control IPs is a big, huge thing now. 
and um, but the people who control the IPs are sort of, that's sort of the scary part because they're not necessarily in the hands of storytellers. Right. Um, they're in the hands of producers with a lot of money so that you as a storyteller can you know, be brought in to um, adapt that thing. But if that relationship for any reason goes south, you've done a whole bunch of work and you have no control over what happens um, to it. And so that's very terrifying to me as well. Um, I'm excited about the barriers to entry um, sort of lowering every day mm -hmm. and access to equipment, um, more opportunities to create the future that you want. Um, I'm excited that almost every network and channel that I know of now is very much um, uh, you know, sort of scouring the internet for interesting. Um, bye, that's my assistant, Megan. She's going home now. <laughs> bye, Megan, like home to LA. She's leaving me, really. <laughs> bye, safe travels. <laughs> okay, so, um, so, you know, I love that because that means more creative voices um, and there are more outlets right. and, um, but I love that networks are looking now with, because of the su um, successes of people like Issa Rae, they're looking now for the places where you will create your stuff, they're looking for you. Right, right. And that obviously is relatively new. I love that the most of all. Well, my last question, which I ask everyone, and if you have an answer to this, I'll be impressed given all you're doing, is what are you watching? <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay. You know what I'm watching? I, I, I am obsessed with Veep. I love that show so much. I can't get enough of that show. Stranger Things, no longer House of Cards. It has jumped the shark for me. I don't even know what they're doing. I don't even know what it's supposed to be. Um, I loved Bloodline until this last season. Now I don't know what that is anymore. It's like, but those are, I love them the first and second season. Um, what else do I love? Quarry. I, you, I know, it's like, have to find it. It's too bad too, it's on um, Cinemax. And it just did not get, it truly was the best thing on television. They did eight episodes, and, um, but it didn't get the audience. I don't even know if it's coming back for a second season. Um, the Nick is another one of my favorite shows. Um, I love Atlanta. Um, I do watch. Yeah. So you don't sleep, I'm assuming. <laughs> <laughs> Not so much. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you. Um, I'm now going to open it up for questions, and we even have Annie with the microphone. Hey, so let's. Uh... This guy right here, he's, his hand is up the very first. Don't be shy, folks. I'll wait for the microphone. <laughs> So you, you talked about how important it is uh, for you to develop and make a show that depicts life at a historically black college. And you also talked about how you believe in you know, having a singular vision. So I was wondering if you could speak to how you navigated that singular vision around the onslaught of fandom commentary that, you know, like the people have lots to say about it. They sure so, do. Yeah, they have lots to say about oh it. My so gosh. how do you, you know, deal with that in oh. a professional setting with your job? Yes, thank you. Um, I feel very proud of the show, and um, 
it's, it's interesting because when people don't like something, they're so much louder than the people who do, right? And so it's like, well, what do you say? This isn't what you just said, but what do you say about all the negative, I'm like, there's not all the, there's like this one president of one university who's an idiot. Like that doesn't mean it's everybody, but he was just an incredibly vocal idiot who was also uninformed. You could tell by the things he wrote in his letter about how horrible my show was, that he hadn't even bothered to watch it. So what I try to do is to do what I do. I don't really, I'm not gonna combat, you know, by going at him, I'm not gonna accomplish anything. So I talk about what the show has done well. I talk about how many HBCU graduates are on the crew, on, on the cast, on the writing staff. Um, I talk about the people who go to the schools where we shoot at, Mar at Morehouse College and Clark Atlanta um, College. I talk about the internship program that, um, that I founded. I talk about, um, so I talk about what we are doing as opposed to trying to battle him about what we're not doing. Um, you know, that's basically what I do. But yeah, it is like, you know, and it's because, you know, then people are like, well, people have opinions. What are you gonna do? <laughs> what are you gonna do? But the ratings, you know, say that we're doing just fine and we're back for a second season, so it must be okay. Hi. Um, so you had mentioned back at the beginning uh, that you, the first script you wrote was for that Warner Brothers program. So how much prep did you do in writing that script since it was your first? Like, yeah. I guess how, how much work did that really take for it to be so well written and everything for the... We're talking about this in my specs writing class right here on this campus right now. <laughs> um, you know what I did, I watched, it was a show, I chose a show that I watched anyway, so that's what I think you should all do if you're gonna write a spec. And um, because it's a show you know and enjoy, right? But I then went back and watched every episode from a different point of view of I'm now gonna write one. And I think it's really, really important to listen to them without watching them um, so that you really get how they speak. And when you're watching and you're seeing production design and cinematography and prop, you know, props and all that stuff, it really does take you away from what you'll be doing, which is putting it on the page in a way that's interesting. So I really encourage people to just listen to them without watching them as well. I know Annie is getting some exercise. <laughs> <laughs> um, you touched on this a little bit before, but I wanted to ask, um, with higher expectations for having a digital presence and being involved on social media, how does that change the pitch process for you? The pitch process? Yes. Um, hmm. I don't know if it's changed the pitch process. I think that... Um, Hmm. I think that the pitch process, if anything, is changed by access to your own ability now to present, um, you know, multimedia presentations so much easier as part of your pitch, so that sometimes people are now bringing out full-on, um, you know, videos and almost that they, you know, rip from a whole bunch of movies and to present your thing and. Um, you know, with access to Photoshop and photo, like there's all, it's all multimedia pitching now. And I really don't like that, you know, because it's like, and I have participated in it, 
but um, I try not to um, because I just like I want to tell a story, you know. But sometimes people have gotten things on the air because they've had an amazing multimedia um, pitch. But mostly the, the ones I know of anyway haven't lasted because it was more about the pitch than it was about the show you were going to, to, to um, produce. Oh, um, uh, speaking of transmedia type things, you were talking about like how you do a talk back after thing mm -hmm. for the quad and you also talk in some of the readings that we had to do for our class about like having to do like things that tie in that are like extra. Like <laughs> how has that been impacting the shows that you've been running and the shows that you've worked on? Yeah, I would say in the last 10 years more and more Right, this will be the first one where I'm, you know, doing a talk back because I'm a writer. I like it behind the camera, right? But this time I will be in front of the camera. So, um, but I know that I remember like being on Gossip Girls the first time that I'd ever seen um, product integration in that way. Um, and so when they were telling us it was Verizon and they, you know, laid out all of their 10 or 12 phones and had a whole presentation on which character they thought would use which phone. And I was like, I don't care. Like, you know, she's just gonna pick up the phone and call her boyfriend. Like, you know, but those phones, as they laid them out, went to each, here's Dan's phone, here's Serena's phone. Like, we did it that way. And I thought, this is just dumb, right? <laughs> but now it is even, oh my gosh, it is more, it's crazy now. Like and on the quad right now, the only sneakers that we can use are Nikes. Now they're Nikes, so you're not screwed. But I'm like, not everyone wears Nikes, and we can't do any like character-specific stuff for a character who would never wear Nikes because BT now has such a big deal with Nike. So um, I don't really like that, you know. So because it 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 takes away from you trying to be character-specific. But it is, it is absolutely changed. But, um, but the writers do. They enjoy it um, very much. And um, in the first season, I was surprised to find out what our social media presence was and that we were, you know, tweet, we were um, trending um, in the top five every episode uh, for when we were airing. And I was like, wow, that's interesting. But our ratings weren't as high. So, but it, so it had a lot to do with the fact that we were trending, that they realized, well, maybe we've done something, you know, maybe as a network we need to do something better to promote the show to people who watch it on television, you know, but the fact that um, we had such a heavy um, Twitter following was part of why we got a new, a new season. So I'm a, I'm a firm believer that like, diamonds are made under pressure, so, how do you handle the stress and pressure of <laughs> working sorry, on a deadline? I'm sorry, that's very funny. <laughs> that's very good. So I'm gonna always remember him, okay? And that's important. When you go into a meeting, you always, one of the things, I'm going back to your earlier question, one of the things that you have to ask, if you do the research, if you were gonna have a meeting with me for like my writer's trainee, I always have a WGA trainee on every show I'm on, sometimes too. Um, but if you are going to have that meeting, you should try to find out everything you can about me so that when you sit in that meeting, everything about the show, everything you can, 
And now, come on, with Google, what is your excuse? And so that you can say something and find something somewhere that will, um, that will, I won't forget that you knew. And find a way to make it personal, right? So um, that's what I have to say about that. It's, it's to find a way to do that. That is so, so important so that they, when they're t looking at the 25 people who came before them, the one that they, you know, or myself will remember that guy, like that little mentee I told you I met just on Friday. This kid is like, he's 20, he's a senior at Morehouse, and he, he was quoting from some article I don't even remember being interviewed from. I don't even know where he got it, you know? But it was really impressive, so yes, diamonds are made under pressure. <laughs> That's, How do you handle working on deadlines? Is that what you said? Yes, but no more, no different than your pressure if you're taking your study seriously. I mean, in my two classes here, it's one of the things in my very syllabus that says, you know, I will not take student excuses for why you didn't do your work. If you say you want to be in the business that I'm in, then behave like you do. Deadlines are real. Nobody in the real world's gonna wanna hear, I would have done it, but you know, my computer broke, because now you can't even say your dog ate your homework, right? <laughs> so nobody wants to hear that, and I feel like I've done my students a disservice if I allow that. Um, so my pressure shouldn't feel any different than your pressure to do your best and to take deadlines seriously um, and get them done by any means necessary. Based on your own personal experiences and the people you know, what do you think is the key to having career longevity in this industry? I think I go back to work ethic, for sure. Um, you know, there are a ton of people who are way smarter than I am, um, but I don't know anyone who works as hard as I do. I have always been that way. My friends who are doing well, um, and that doesn't mean we all work the same, you know, work hard the same. I think I can, I'm still trying to improve some things about how much I work, you know, and that uh, to be more efficient. But I think that that is um, one of the most important things is, um, is how hard you're willing to work and, um, you know, and how professional you are. And I think the other thing I would say is about your ability to change. I, I think probably at this point, five times I've said, I'm, it's time to reinvent myself. And so you have to be open to reinvention, I think. Annie's getting some exercise. Yeah, I'm glad you didn't wear heels. <laughs> <laughs> you talked about before uh, the homogenization of TV writers' rooms and that kind of culture by default that can happen, the um, authorial voice by default. Mm -hmm. If you're a writer who finds yourself in the kind of liminal space of the writer's room where maybe you have the viewpoint that other people don't have or you want to make a point. Yes. Um, how do you handle that? How have you handled that in the past? Well, that's a good question. It is very tricky, isn't it? Because if you are a lower level writer or what we call a baby writer, so that you are either a trainee or a staff writer um, or even a story editor, you know, a lot of times I tell young writers, your job is to just stay in the game so that you're there long enough to be a voice that makes decisions. And um, 
that's what I really believe. So a lot of times at that level, if you have something that you know is going to be controversial, um, you really better know your audience. And um, if you have a showrunner, like figure out your showrunner, learn to read the room. What are the politics of the room? You can tell if this is a woman or man who gives lip service to, I like all opinions, but they really only ever say yes to their own. Like that's what you have to figure out. That's where you, your sort of social intelligence as a lower level writer is the most important tool that you can have. Um, you'd be amazed sometimes. I'm like, I can't believe you didn't know that that was a dumb thing to say to that person. But it happens all the time. So I look at like, what is your social intelligence about just figuring out and studying the person you're reporting to? Or the, what the um, environment is, or the atmosphere, or what is the personality of that room? Is it a place that really welcomes an um, um, individual interesting thought from lower level writers? Or is it a place that mostly cares about what the upper level writers say and you don't know anything? So you have to be smart enough to stay in the game long enough to make decisions, to become a decision maker, so you can not be that way, right? I was curious about your process and how it differs um, with your approach to science fiction. And it's kind of a two-part question. Also, how your approach to storytelling differs for you. Everyone, every time I hear from a screenwriter, they all have different things I that stress yeah. in terms of story. So I'm curious what your approach is in that regard. And then if science fiction is more limiting or challenging or liberating for you and who your favorite comic book character is. <laughs> <laughs> that is, those are all very good questions. Um, I think my process is that I always try to start from a place of character and, um, and then I'd listen to the music I think that character would listen to as I'm developing my character pages, as I'm writing my outline, as I'm writing the script. Music is a very important part of my life. So I'm always thinking about what music does this piece want or this character want um, me to listen to while I'm writing. Um, I really do try to go inside my head and be that person. Um, and try to let them decide what should be on the page. How would they say it so that I'm not judging and I'm not speaking the way that I speak? Um, I think that's important, and I know that sounds weird, but that's what I do. I literally will sometimes just close my eyes and try to hear that person speaking um, while listening to music. I think that um, science fiction is very liberating um, because anything that you can um, think of, you can do, except it also is difficult because you always have to have to you always have to have rules to that world, and it's very difficult to write, especially for a young writer, because you often then end up breaking the rules of the world because you didn't spend enough time setting the world rules for the world. Um, but I I really like it, and of course the Punisher is my favorite comic book. <laughs> <laughs> We have time, I think, for one more question. Somebody earlier mentioned uh, the homogenization of writers' rooms, and you yourself talked about um, kind of the, I wanted to say, like, the cannibalizing of, like, directors into managers, into executives, and how that's collapsing. So 
with that in mind, are you optimistic about the future of not just diverse productions, but diverse uh, producers, so like writers, directors, all of that? Are you optimistic about the future of those kinds of things? Sometimes. Um, no, that's my real answer because I have um, lots of issues with diversity programs um, for new people and, um, and then how those people are seen as they come on as the diversity hire um, and that they don't necessarily are, these programs never tell people who are in decision-making um, decision positions and so um, it's hard for, and it's hard for those on the bottom if they have no mentors to stay there and rise up and you know, become decision makers. So um, they kind of bug me, those programs, because I think the focus is in the wrong place. Um, so sometimes I am, I am very excited, um, and sometimes it is um, you know, wanting to see more opportunities for like women directors, I, I, for me, but it's because I'm a woman, and not even saying all women are like this, that half of my directors have to be women. But that's just like for anyone, if you're in that category or group, right, then you're more conscious of the need to do that kind of thing. So I would love for us to get to the point where you don't have to be a woman or a person of color to be focused on that. It's just what we all do. Well, that seems like a good place to end, I believe. Thank you so much. This was very valuable. Thanks for listening to Media Industry Conversations. For information about upcoming speakers or to hear past guests, visit rtf.utexas.edu slash mic. Or follow us on Twitter at rtfmic. If you have a moment, rate and review the podcast on iTunes. If you love the show, let us know. The series was made possible by the work of Dr. Elisa Perrin and Cindy McCreary with the assistance of Brett Siegel, Britta Hansen, and Annie Major, and the program was produced and edited by me, Kyle Rather. This has been a production of the Department of Radio, TV, and Film in the Moody College of Communication at the University of Texas at Austin. We hope you join us again next time for another Media Industry Conversation.